Thanks again for tuning into Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode, we continue on our sex work and Marxism series focusing on disability and self-determination. This is just a reminder that we do rate all of our episodes as E for explicit. The themes and the topics discussed in this episode are upsetting, so we want people to approach this episode seriously. This is not entertainment, but we do hope that it is somewhat entertaining as well as informative. I beg two things of everybody listening now. One is that you actually listen with sincerity. This is a real human being with real experiences that you're listening to. And although we might disagree on some things that are said, you cannot deny this person's life experience. You cannot deny their suffering, their exclusion. Nor can you deny Miranda's sincere passion and love for progress, for people, for humanity. The second request I ask from you is, is that you just appreciate that not everybody's got a high-tech, top-of-the-range microphone to record with, so if the quality is not great on this podcast or others, you just appreciate and just try and pay attention where you can. A lot of comrades are doing great things with what they've got, so we should appreciate that. Without further ado, here is our 23rd episode, Sex Work and Marxism Part 2. Disability and self-determination with Miranda with an A. It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them which said the pretty factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East and I would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born it's just like horrifying it's not it's not British culture it's just the world's culture they love stories they love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this I think it's a distraction from the class struggle to be honest hey thank you so much for having me on the show so my name is Miranda Elizabeth, my pronoun is they, and I've been writing and self-publishing for over 15 years. Um, my short story is I'm a writer, zinster, high school dropout, identical twin, cane user, daydreamer, flenda, and recovering alcoholic approaching a decade sober. I'm an author of three novels, Ragdoll House, which I published in 2013, We Are the Weirdos in 2017, and Oliver, A Lover All Over in 2019. And in 2012, I published a nonfiction anthology of the first decade of my zines called Telegram, a collection of 27 issues. Uh, since then, I've written 42 issues and subsequently probably retired the title. And I also wrote zines called Little Acorns and Edith. Um, I continue to write fairly frequently on my blog, and I'm working on multiple fiction projects as well, including a novella inspired by my time working at a local sex club here in Toronto and a sequel to We Are the Weirdos called We Are the Nobodies. Also, for a couple years, I wrote a column exploring the tarot through a lens of disability and illness named See the Cripple Dance. I grew up in poverty, raised with my twin by a single mom who worked as a receptionist and bookkeeper at various nonprofits, and both of us dropped out of school when we were 14. 
a lot of what I learned about politics, gender, sexuality, and systems of power and oppression came not only through my lived experience, but from the music I was listening to in my pre-adolescence. Some of my favorite bands back then, and still now, were Hole, Nirvana, and Marilyn Manson. And then I was listening to Bikini Kill and other Riot Girl era bands. And then going back and listening to earlier bands and artists and writers who influenced them. I started reading zines as a preteen and then making my own when I was 15 or 16, which I have continued since then. At 13 and 14, I'd been arrested, charged, and incarcerated multiple times, and was then on probation, which involved monthly check-ins with probation officers, as well as a curfew and other arbitrary rules, until I turned 19. This was traumatizing in a way that definitely still affects me in my adulthood but it also helped me become anti-cop and anti-prison very young. I was only 11 when I was first prescribed psychiatric medications, and I was a rebellious kid. I always had this sense of deep injustice and rage at how the world around me operated. Thank you. Yeah, just to put in there, I just want to say that I can not only empathize with your sense of feeling disgust and rage at the world and everything it is, but I can also remember, I can remember that unlike you at age 11, me at age 10 was put on adult doses of antidepressants, Prozac. Uh, It obviously just made me a docile, submissive little kid who was constantly off his tits were feeling even more um, enraged at the injustice that was occurring to me uh, again at the age of 10. I know that there will be a lot of listeners who not only empathise but remember what that's like also because it's a fucked up world and to not recognise it at an early age you yourself have to be a, a level of fucked up but please continue up isolated in a small town with few or no friends and a little or no internet access. I always wanted to be a writer, but it wasn't until after leaving high school that I began writing more and sharing it and also studying more. When I wasn't at home, I spent most of my time at the library. Uh, Some of my favorite books to read were on various feminist movements throughout time, including texts that were both pro and anti-sex work, uh, biographies of old Hollywood stars, as well as biographies, autobiographies, and memoirs of writers, artists, musicians, and sex workers. And then, too, I was reading fiction about misfits and outcasts and vampires and witches and so on. I rarely read books by or about men because I wasn't drawn to them, and that remains the same today. Uh, In my early to mid-twenties, I started writing more about mental health and illness and disability. Uh, That was after I'd survived my first suicide attempt and got locked into a pattern of multiple psych ward stays, meds and diagnoses galore, and all the complications that brings. 
I got into Mad Pride activist movements and arts and ongoing histories. I learned about anti-psychiatry movements from the 1970s onward. I came to identify as crazy and then capital C, crazy, and later as disabled. Uh, one of the reasons I say capital C crazy is to signify or to locate myself in a tradition of mentally ill people resisting. Mm. Uh, Interesting. Not only treatment, but maybe the way treatment kind of tells us to conform under the expectations of capitalism otherwise. Yeah, that's great. We are supposedly either insane or treatment resistant or those kinds of things. And also thinking about how there are lowercase d and capital D deaf communities and how the lowercase and uppercase uh, letters have uh, different meanings. Um, so that's where that comes from. <laughs> Thank you. And then later identified as disabled. Um, nearly 15 years ago, I began receiving social assistance and that too has politicized me more and more over time. I grew up in a small town called Lindsay in the province of Ontario. Lindsay is Ojibwe, Chippewa and Anishinaabek land. And I currently live in Toronto, Ontario, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and the Métis. Uh, most of my friendships were made through my zines and other writing, through pen pals and snail mail, and we were all queer feminists. However, as I became more ill in my late 20s, and then as chronic pain reduced and then eliminated my ability to walk, I found that I could relate less and less to those in my shared or overlapping communities. And then, due to ableism and inaccessibility, I was essentially abandoned. Also, when I say my like shared or overlapping communities, I think subcultures is a more accurate term. Anyway, I lost contact with friends and acquaintances and found I was no longer invited to participate in events, readings, or gatherings, etc. Gentrification, too, pushed people out of the city and out of the province. There were years that I spent mostly housebound, leaving only for medical appointments and therapy sessions. But it was also during this time that I got into disability justice and began finding meaning and purpose through illness, pain, and isolation. I also started reading whatever academic texts on disability studies I could reserve from the library, which of course led to questions like, what does it mean to read engage with these texts that are both about me, yet typically inaccessible to me and to people like me? Thank you for that, Miranda. I really do appreciate your open honesty when it comes to just talking about not having a lot of friends when you're growing up and a lot of your friends coming from online, from reading groups or book clubs or, you know, things like that. You no, know, with people with shared interests. 
there's definitely a degree of bravery when it comes to recognising your own social exclusion to an extent, you know, knowing if you're not exactly a popular one. You know, it's great to have friends about you, even if it is a bit of a headache sometimes, but a lot of people do not have that, I swear to God. And it can come from when you're in school and you just simply never really clicked with anybody and never ended up started going to town when you, you come of age into all the clubs. So, you again, you just become even further socially excluded when it comes to activities beyond school. And I think that the left needs to look at themselves and really think, hmm, am I popular? Do people like me? Does nobody like me? Have I got no friends? Because whether this is true or not, you can always find comrades online as you have. But if you're lacking experience in having a huge friends group how are you gonna convince you know the vast population to follow you and, and your ideology if you can't even make friends yeah, i just think that that's something to consider personally like particularly when workers have less friends than the lumpen you know as a matter of a fact Miranda, in our emails and previously just then you touched upon disability, you think that we could go into that a little bit more and I think your experience would be valuable to talk about this topic that maybe it doesn't get talked about enough? It was over six years ago that I started using my first cane and there were times that I needed and would have preferred to be using a rollator or a wheelchair but my home isn't physically accessible and moving was not and is not an option. As I experienced a remission in my 30s, I had very little desire to reconnect with people from my past, those subcultures aforementioned. Although I was still writing furiously for myself and my relative sanity, and I'm using sanity for lack of a better word because The idea, I think, of what sanity is, is not really something I aspire to. And I wrote for whoever would read it. (laughs) Um, Although I would emphasize that my writing was first and foremost for disabled people, for outcasts, and for folks who are also on social assistance. I suppose I would say my writing is for the lumpen, although that wasn't uh, the term I was using at the time because for the most part, I was not exactly engaging with Marxist texts or that theory or that language, because as someone who, I mean, my writing is my work, but it's like, technically I wasn't working. So anything I encountered about the working class wasn't something that resonated with me. And it was also, although I, wasn't describing it in those terms, it was very clear to me that the working class was not in solidarity with the lumpen and that those of us who were on social assistance and or were unemployed were basically not considered, not known, not interacted with. I, yeah, that's just how it was to me. I don't like it when my writing is misinterpreted by outsiders as somehow educational, um, even though it can be. Education is not my intention. I've actually occasionally learned about about my work being taught in like universities, which has it's. I have any time that that has happened, I have found out afterward by somebody telling me. 
And I think that when my work is being used in that context, especially as an unemployed high school dropout, I really wish I could be first asked first because I'm just like a person who's like hanging out here and like easily accessible through like sending an email. <laughs> and also that I could participate in some way that if, if my texts are being engaged with in a classroom, that is also a conversation I wish yeah. I could partake in and even... Yeah, that'd be cool. And even hear what questions are being posited, ask my own questions about how readers engage with the work, or, or even look at my own work and say, oh, huh, this isn't how I feel anymore, but it meant this at this particular time. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, what that disconnect is. But anyway, education isn't my intention with my writing. I am much more interested in self-expression and resistance and solidarity. Gosh, and yet, Manana, you know, you wanted to be a writer when you were in school. You've written in abundance, even if it is, if you say, for your own sanity. I'm definitely not doing this for anything other than my own <laughs> survival. <laughs> if I don't do this, I'd fully go on a murder rampage or, like, do myself in. But also, it's really interesting that you say that you didn't know at the time that you're writing for the lumping, but you do now. Um, please that we could help spread that class consciousness in some way. The fact that you come to your own conclusion from the other side of the sea that the left doesn't include the lumping in much of its organising, you know, that just speaks abundance as to why this project is important. You know, the left doesn't even stand with the left. The workers don't even stand with the workers. Never mind the workers with the lumping, but... And I think they haven't because historically they've been classist and bigoted as well as lack basic social skills with groups of people from other subcultures. I mean, they're excellent at being subservient to a capitalist boss. But anyway, where's the sex work in this? How did you get into that? It was during my remission that I entered sex work, um, both through making porn and by working full service, partly because I was broke as fuck and partly because I like fucking. <laughs> I also was and am <laughs> receiving far too much attention from men, usually mediocre straight men, and I couldn't be bothered unless I could monetize their desire. Since social assistance is not a livable income, for example, I think average rent in my city of Toronto for a bachelor apartment is probably between, I don't know, a thousand to thirteen hundred dollars a month. Whereas um, I'm on, so I'm on disability, and the maximum income disability gives to recipients for monthly rent is $489. And so you are expected to make up the rest, I guess, or otherwise be evicted and become homeless. Wow. It's so interesting how the conversations come from sex work to immediately like paying rent and 
your bills, people need to really listen to that. So you're supposed to make up what another three hundred, four hundred dollars to pay the rent, and that you know not including food, gas, water, electricity. I mean, I think a lot of people who are criticising sex workers literally live in the parents' house and haven't even got to pay their own bills. Yet you're faced with the reality of becoming homeless if you don't pay your bills, and and you know even if you do scrape by paying that rent, that's just existing it's not living and that's with social assistance did you say yeah since social assistance is not a livable income uh sex work is what affords me the ability to escape food insecurity to access meaningful and competent health care like psychotherapy and acupuncture a membership at a good yoga studio etc and so-called nice things like books and clothes and music that many people get to take for granted. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's also how I'm able to continue self-publishing, which costs money behind the scenes. In fact, with my last novel, Oliver, A Lover All Over, I paid a friend of mine to design that book, and the money that I paid them with was definitely hooker cash. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how I would have done that otherwise. Previously, with We Are the Weirdos, I did that through a crowdfunding effort myself and another friend of mine who is an illustrator. But I find crowdfunding in that way and also crowdfunding for basic needs, which I have done multiple times, extremely stressful, not something I can count on or rely on, and not something I actually want to do. Yeah, it kind of sends me into despair sometimes to think about how uh, chronically ill, sick, disabled, mad people are so frequently forced to crowdfund to have our basic needs met. Jeez, yeah. And also how often that crowdfunding sort of relies on being seen as, honestly, as productive, like as productive despite our illnesses or having a kind of social capital or like coolness or something that makes people want to give you money, Um, having a kind of audience already. And that is something that a lot of sick people and a lot of people on social assistance do not have. Yeah, that is disgusting, Miranda. Anyway. Also, how I'm able to rest. Yeah, money buys me time to rest. (laughs) Um, I was sick of dumpstering. I've dumpstered off and on for many years to get food and other wonderful trash. The time and the labor and the physical pain of it uh, was too much for me, as well as the danger. I had been caught multiple times. It happens. I survived, but there were consequences. Um, And I'd known since forever that I would become a sex worker someday. Uh, It was among the futures I could imagine for myself. But it wasn't until shortly before the FOSTA-SESTA laws passed in the U.S. that I could get more serious about it. Uh, nor until my temporary remission that my body could actually do it. And I highlight temporary remission because, indeed, 
Uh, the pain and fatigue have increased since then. My mobility has once again been reduced since then, um, especially during the pandemic, which is, uh, I think, my body's, my nervous response system to a very coll collective trauma and it also typically my pain typically increases in winter yeah essentially even though i've had these little windows of remission where i become more mobile it's not something i can count on i i can never take it for granted that later today that tomorrow i will be able to walk that i'll be able to walk a few blocks to the grocery store or around the park or you know just just ordinary shit. um it was also during my years of severe illness and then entering sex work uh that i published my first three novels well done so usually i refer to myself as a messy anti-capitalist I've definitely put that in like dating profiles, <laughs> although I don't have dating profiles right now because uh, dating apps also hate hookers and have banned me and many others. But anyway, and one of the reasons I use the term messy anti-capitalist is kind of like when we were uh, meeting earlier in our conversation today and I was chatting about my political tendencies and why I don't necessarily identify with one political branch of leftist or feminist thought, as in I don't really call myself a Marxist or call myself this or that. Like It's like I know that I am an anti-capitalist and I know what kind of features I want, but I can't necessarily categorize it into one simple term that holds all that complexity. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, messy anti-capitalist is where I am. And I identify with animals like raccoons and squirrels and black cats. Um, <laughs> because like raccoons and squirrels, who are like among my favorite city creatures, um, who I'm often observing and befriending, <laughs> they're like scrappy and they're scroungers and scavengers. They adapt and they get sneaky to have their needs met no matter how many times they're kicked out. It's like, you know, the city creates different kinds of trash bins with different locks and raccoons are fucking smart and they unlock them. They know what they're doing. And the reason I identify with black cats is like years ago, again, when I could barely walk or when I did, my body was crooked and limping, holding on to my cane, being very slow, being in people's way, which I love. <laughs> I came to have this visualization of being a black cat where I could be seen as good luck to some people and bad luck to others, depending on whose path I'm crossing. I can't get over your cats just meowed when you said cat. I haven't been able to conform to one political tradition or tendency. Why is that, Miranda? Is it the ideology itself or the communities or people? Mostly because, aside from explicitly feminist, queer, trans, and anti-racist spaces, they can be 
far too male dominated. That is especially true of Marxism, of MLM places, and definitely especially ableist, often intentionally so. So the futures that I want are a total abolition of prisons and police and landlords and private property. The futures I want are accessible and decolonized. I've done anti-poverty organizing and sex work activism, but most of what I do is through writing. It's my long intro. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Miranda. It wasn't just an intro, it was an account of your life, of your experiences living in the belly of the beast, your experiences from being disabled, from being an anti-capitalist, to how the state managed you as a child. You really, and we appreciate this, openly and honestly painted a picture of your economic, physical and explicitly your mental health as well as class circumstance from birth all the way through to your development as an adult and a sex worker which will be the main theme going forward. Before I respond to your introduction and those themes there I'm just going to let Ryan respond first. Oh well, wow, there's actually so much there. You've lived a life much more interesting and fulfilling than mine, for sure. But as I hear you speak, it actually just annoys me how much that people can't empathise with other people without actually having to hear first-hand accounts. It reminds me of conservative stances on things like gay rights, right? They're against them, and they don't understand it until someone in their family comes out. Suddenly it affects them personally, and now they understand it. It's just a shame that people require this to be able to empathize and understand other people. Yeah. Your books sound very interesting, though. Um, I would love to check them out. I think a lot of people would probably identify with not really fitting into a, a, a neat little box when it comes to anti-capitalism. I personally don't label myself ML or anything because I just want the best ideas to win out no matter what sect they come from, I suppose. So I don't want to sort of limit myself to the thoughts of any denomination, I guess. So I, I feel that when you say uh, messy anti-capitalist, I feel that for sure. And I'm, I'm actually sure that many other people will as well. Yeah, well said, Ryan. And Miranda, I commented on your intro as I went through a few times, but overall, my thoughts echo much of what Ryan just said. The frustration of people not empathising with other people until it affects them personally, until it becomes part of their story and their life that somebody's, you know, gay by fucking whatever you know what i'm saying additionally miranda i just want to fucking give you a hug for all of that you're talking about from early childhood again similarly you just want to leave school you feel like it's a fucking prison it's wrong to be there to cage fucking you know getting told you're depressed and being fucking force-fed adult doses of fucking antidepressants and all this shit you dealing with suicidal thoughts constantly you know physical pain trying to fucking get about it you can't wait you can't keep a job because it's a fucking load of shit and honestly you're pathetic as fuck if you keep a job there's no good positive thing to for any revolutionary 
to say to another supposed revolutionary who's quite happy serving a capitalist master. It's fucking stupid, you know, especially when the end goal's fucking mass strike. And uh, honest to God, these workers have got the fucking heads up their asses. And meanwhile, the fucking point looking down at people like you and I for being lumping, for not being able to serve a capitalist master. Are you fucking mad? And sent to be ruled by a capitalist is the true madness. But to our listeners to highlight, but just to summarise the main points for our listeners there from you and so, you're fucking dealing with depression, fucking suicidal thoughts, you're fucking crippled, yeah, people are excluding you from revolutionary organisations, you don't feel like people are actually taking your plight seriously, they're putting their concerns over a worker, a fucking class above you, above the underclass, the people at the bottom. It's very clear to anybody with a fucking brain cell, yeah, that nobody needs a revolution more than a lump and nobody needs a revolution more than the disabled, nobody needs a revolution like those underclass workers whether you're fucking selling drugs or whether you're fucking selling your fucking body it doesn't fucking matter, we're going to go back onto fucking the subject of sex work but as you can see I am frustrated and honestly yeah it's because it's a fucking joke people need to fucking start sticking up for the underclass more, I swear to god people yeah fucking do more so I just mentioned the working underclass, whether you know you're drug dealing or whether you're a sex worker. This is one of the main arguments against sex workers from reactionary opportunists. Is sex work actually work? Are you simply just not being exploited? I think it goes without saying that all work under capitalism is exploitative and all work under capitalism is coercive. I say it goes without saying, but I also think it's important to say it again and again and again. (laughs) In this way, sex work is definitely not unique. Sex work is seen as somehow more exploitative than other work, is a predictable and tiresome viewpoint rooted in white supremacist and patriarchal ideas of purity, morals, and respectable behavior. The thing about being despised by the left, both as a sex worker and as a disabled person, is that leftists who choose to leave us behind or to condescend to and infantilize us to believe that we lack class consciousness Mm. or self-awareness, that we are essentially too stupid to understand our own conditions. To me, they are not that different from cops, from liberals, or from doctors and nurses on psych wards. Who told me I would be happy if I just got a job and got a boyfriend. Uh, There is nothing radical or interesting about it. It is just white dude mediocrity. The proletariat left looks at disabled people and sex workers, if they look at us at all, the same way as the bourgeoisie. We are an unwanted class, dirty and inconvenient. (laughs) Cheeky, aren't they? And while the working class is often seen as in need of political education, they are less often condescended to as somehow complicit in their own oppression the way sex workers are. Yeah, absolutely. To me, that they can't understand our revolutionary potential, and not only our potential, also our past and our current reality, our present and our future, shows a basic lack of both imagination and experience. 
ableism too has always been common and almost inevitable with Marxism as well as with anarchism and other revolutionary or political slash leftist tendencies and and I include feminism under those categories. That is true of both left and right. It is a perspective left and right have always shared, which is seen especially one example is the kind of reactionary leftism and anarchism, which culminates in primitivism and back to the land ideals romanticized by people who are usually white and mostly non-disabled. It happens often also like with mad folks who are not physically disabled or don't have mobile disabilities, but are, of course, alienated under capitalism and then have this reactionary response of, I will escape and I will build a cabin in the woods and be self-sufficient which uh, for disabled people is not usually an option. I think that the kind of leftists who I am including here lack a very basic and ordinary understanding of the lumpen, and by choosing to leave us behind, as it were, are showing that in fact they wish for us to be eliminated. That is what eugenics is. Yeah, literally. Um, And yet the lumpen, the unemployed, the mad, the whores, disabled people, and the colonized, we are the most skilled and experienced at creating underground economies and alternatives to capitalism. We are the most skilled and experienced at mutual aid, at creating cooperatives and collectives. Exactly. And we often live lives that kind of paradoxically give us more time and freedom to build and develop the friendships, relationships, communities, care, and conversations uh, that we really want that will carry through the revolution. Yeah, definitely. We'll come back to that. I'm not even sure how I feel about the term left behind the more I think about it. And it is a term I have used a lot. I frequently discuss disabled people in particular being left behind again and again. But the more I've been considering it, I don't think that those who we say leave us behind are somehow ahead of us or above us in any way. It's almost like I don't want want to relinquish or want to give them that power, I suppose, to say that, that they even can leave me behind, you know? Yeah, they can't leave us behind because, like you said, the lumpen can afford to actually have friends. <laughs> workers are just atomized workers who go to work and then speak and work with their colleagues and then go home and do that same old shit. But again, the lumpen can afford to build economies outside of the capitalist economy and, and organize with each other in the community to do communal things because they've actually got fucking time and they've got money to, you know, have thought about it in the past where the lumpen can 
have all the tables and the booths and the clubs and sit in the best spots while all the working class people are getting all sweaty in the mixer on the dance floor and you know with the lumpen are living like fucking lords you know what I'm saying to me the lumpen have always been the masses and the workers are the fringe and the cringe and you know the people who are truly you know they've been coerced into being wage slaves whereas the lumpen are not being coerced by anybody they're just simply taking it on the fucking chin and doing what they've got to do to make ends meet without sacrificing the personal fucking dignity like all of the fucking workers who may as well be getting shaven every fucking winter by some farmer for the sheep that they are if you ask me so you know for like nearly 200 years we were promised this working class revolution the working class revolution has never ever come I think it has to do with something with the working class organisation and bigotry towards the lumpen personally so Miranda what would your revolution look like my revolution is crips to the front whores to the front black and indigenous people to the front mad sick disabled and chronically ill queers to the front we are indispensable and there is no revolution without us <laughs> nice and yes yeah, so true miranda but spitting real revolutionary shit here all the other fucking marxist leninist podcasts and all that they're just going to be reading out of fucking books and going over theory and just basically giving you historical fucking shit that you could just research online but we're actually really talking about the issues within the left wing movement today do you know what i'm saying whilst also proposing solutions and you're not gonna find nothing like this nowhere else but revolutionary lump and radio have you got any more critiques of the left or political ideologies also wanted to note that it is true also of many liberals and liberal feminists and the way they overlap with carceral feminists too to i think fight politely to be included and visible and represented in the system as it is and in institutions as they are yeah uh rather than to take on the more meaningful fight of upending the system altogether and creating something new Mm. Mm. yeah fighting politely like we are involved in class war we have to struggle we have to fight for all of our freedoms constantly we have throughout the entirety of history just think about fighting physically politely that's it's unachievable there's probably comments out there who probably listen to me and they're like they're kind of like taken back and they kind of think i'm like somewhat aggressive or or all of this shit but really i'm like i'm aggressive as motherfucking che Guevara. you got loads of love in your heart but you gotta know what you're fighting for and you have to actually fight for it and like it doesn't really fucking matter what's standing in the way we're fighting for good we're fighting for justice we're fighting for equality we're fighting for fucking prosperity you can't fight politely and if you do want to fight politely join your fucking local social democrat party and then fucking get involved in, in electoralism this is revolution Thank you very much for that contribution, Miranda. Have you got any thoughts on the theory side of things? Because that was a little to do with practice. Uh, Marxist theory, as Frantz Fanon famously stated in The Wretched of the Earth, is meant to be stretched every time it's encountered. Marxist theory isn't meant to be static, and it isn't meant to be already complete and final. I've been lumping since birth, 
there was a brief time that I worked more traditional or societally acceptable jobs. I started working when I was 15. Actually, I started babysitting when I was 11 and was quote-unquote working court-ordered community service hours prior to that when I was 13 and 14. I've worked in factories, I've worked in retail, once upon a time, I worked in a movie rental store. <laughs> um, I worked as a fabric cutter, a drugstore cashier. That was the job I held the longest, drug cash, drugstore cashier. About a year and a half is the longest I've kept one, one gig outside of sex work. That'll be the same year. I've worked as a department store clerk, been a telemarketer, and a sandwich maker. I've worked as a crossing guard and as a childcare provider. I have edited essays and novels, which I very much love doing, actually. And I briefly wrote essays on politicizing disability and madness in, I guess, what I am calling the not paid well trauma essay of the week machine on the internet. And I would argue that sex work is less exploitative than freelance writing, especially what I think is the feminized labor of the personal essay, and especially when that writing is on subjects like trauma and pain, as it so often is. Oh yeah, for sure. It's definitely important to mention that uh, all work under capitalism is literally exploitation as the labour theory of value shows us. A lot of people will be able to understand and relate to your experience of having job after job. I know I relate to that because I've bounced between a lot of jobs also, and I mean, that's what people today mean when they talk about the reality of the, the gig economy or post-fordom, that which we all live under currently. There is also an ever-increasing amount of niche left-wing ideologies that don't really exist anywhere but on the internet, and it's a, a very strange thing to see for sure. Yeah, that's true. So, do you reckon you can have fulfilling work? work that has been the most, although not totally, fulfilling for me is writing, uh, specifically self-publishing. And the work that's paid me well enough is sex work, specifically full service. And when I say full service, for anyone who is unfamiliar with the term, it just means meeting people in real life and having sex with them in real life. All the jobs I held when I was younger were significantly more dehumanizing, exploitative, disabling, and crazy-making. <laughs> Not to mention, none of them are jobs my body or psyche could hold today. I often joke that I can't stand up for an eight-hour shift, but I can bend over for one, and that is very true. <laughs> Um, if sex workers can't be Marxists, and if Marxists can't struggle alongside sex workers, Marxism is rendered irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, if your emancipation is brought about by revolution, and the only way you can have a revolution is by organising the masses of the people and you're unable or simply refuse to recruit the most desperate, the most oppressed, the people with the most to gain from communism, the people with the least to lose. If you can't get them on board, then we're going to have another 200 years of freedom Marxist theory without toppling capitalism. 
And that's if the world even lasts this long. You know, it pains me. I doubt it's upsetting. Workers have got unions fighting for them. You know, the lumpen only have each other. Or those, as Ryan mentioned earlier, those who have experienced being a lumpen or know somebody personally who've seen the good in the heart and seen all the positivity that they could bring to the world, despite obviously living a life of the opposites due to material circumstances. But to keep this on topic, we mentioned double standards within patriarchal society when it comes to sex workers with Juniper on our previous sex work episode. Do you think that we could get an answer of you similarly? So that would include like reactionary thoughts, abuse, misunderstandings or hypocrisy that you've witnessed or experienced under the misunderstanding of sex work as we continue to give this a more detailed, accurate definition. So the term sex work was coined by Carol Lee way back in 1979. Uh, She used it at a feminist conference, Women Against Violence in Pornography and Media, developed it later in a one-woman play, and then the term was expounded upon further in an essay called Inventing Sex Work in the anthology Whores and Other Feminists, edited by Jill Nagel. She wrote, I invented sex work, (laughs) not the activity, of course, the term. This This invention was motivated by my desire to reconcile my feminist goals with the reality of my life and the lives of the women I knew. She was one of the first sex workers I'd read when I was growing up, and I was young enough that I have taken it for granted since then that sex workers work, obviously. Um, That's a term that was created, described, lived, and theorized 40 years ago. There are decades and decades of prostitutes organizing, rebelling, resisting, and supporting one another all over the world. We have published thousands of books and essays and zines and everything, made all sorts of creative work. We have organized demonstrations and protests and strikes. There are hundreds and thousands of us discussing our work online every damn day and patronizing and paternalistic arguments from the left and the right alike have not changed. Um, On multiple occasions, I have talked about sex work and learned that the person I'm talking to also is or has been a sex worker. Um, Since I've been writing about poverty and disability for such a long time and haven't held a legitimate or legal job for 15 years, it does not come as a surprise, at least I hope it doesn't come as a surprise to anyone that I have become a sex worker. If it does, I'm kind of like, that's very silly. I've been writing about poverty for a long time. Writing about poverty wasn't going to uh, alleviate that poverty and this is kind of it's almost an inevitable next step so i don't think it should surprise anyone i'm i'm so glad that you do what you do rather than starve and die miranda uh, seriously uh, growing up queer, I knew that it was best to assume, or I, I mean, I learned <laughs> that it was best to assume that anyone around me might be queer too, rather than to assume that someone was straight until until they tell me otherwise. Um, there are always queer people in the room. 
Likewise, I also, over time, learned to remember that there were always sex workers in the room and there were always disabled people in the room. This room can be metaphorical or it can be literal. Oh, wow, Miranda. That just shows really how thoughtful you are and so considerate. You think kind of all the minorities, you know, whatever you want to call them, the literal underclasses, the underdog, you know, the ostracized from society, the forgotten, the lumpen. Yeah, I mean, you you think kind of the most poorest motherfuckers in society and you're saying, look, you should go about your life imagining that they're in the room with you because they're there and they're so often overlooked. And this really emphasizes again the importance of bringing in the lumpen into the class struggle. It's just look at how thoughtful we are. Like we genuinely, genuinely care for the most oppressed people. You know, it's it's mind-blowing when I do actually have arguments with reactionaries who call themselves communists who will happily abuse sex workers and insult them and demean them, call them whores and say their parties and, and political organisations have every right to exclude them from the revolutionary organisations. Oh my God. So sad, man. It's like, but have you ever personally faced this reaction that I'm talking? Um, I do encounter anti-sex work leftists, of course, but since ableism and inaccessibility have already pushed me out of so many organizing opportunities, and since I haven't spent time in post-secondary institutions or acquired any kind of formal education, I thankfully don't need to be in direct contact or conflict with them as often as many other sex workers are. I also don't have the spoons to engage with them online, but I am thankful and indebted to those who do. Um, In a previous episode of Revolutionary Lumpen, the subject of the overrepresentation of students in organizing came up. Oh yeah, don't get me started. That has, for me too, for so damn long, been a very real barrier uh, to what I do. Oh, this is going to be so interesting. Why, how would you describe that phenomenon? How has it affected you? I don't quite have a term for it yet, but in leftist and feminist and queer spaces, it is often assumed that one either is a student or has been a student, and that one identifies with a kind of student class. It is also assumed that if we weren't and aren't students, we also haven't read the same texts and are somehow incapable of developing a radical and revolutionary analysis and practice. Um, Even in anti-poverty organizing of all spaces, there were and are people who would literally say to me that poor people shouldn't be given microphones, for example, at rallies and mics without education and training beforehand because we will say the wrong thing. It's true that people can and do say fucked up shit when given a mic, but that is definitely not exclusive to poor people. It is not exclusive to the lumpen. To ascribe that solely to class is to say that only wealthy or middle class or well-off people can be intelligent, thoughtful, and analytical or that only people who've accessed a formal 
and expensive as well as physically and emotionally laborious and legitimately traumatizing education are qualified to speak on oppression and on revolution. It is so clearly absurd that I don't even need to unpack that here, but one day I will. <laughs> For some reason, it is definitely true that some Marxists don't see the Lumpen as a revolutionary class, not magically, but with materials, training, and education, etc. There is no inherent reason as to why uh, the Lumpen as a class or these people would be unable to assess material conditions and understand their own class consciousness, you know what I mean? Yeah, I probably would say that's an elitist opinion. The the idea that the Lumpen would be too stupid to understand. Right, Charlie, I've just got to butt in with an actual producer's note here. I really have to thank Brett O'Shea, Alison Ascalante, Good Comrades, for their support and their reiteration in the revolutionary potential of the Lumpen. And that's not a shout-out, that's a genuine thank you. Because I'm getting upset as I edit this now and, and just thinking of how much reaction we're up against, how much opportunism within left-wing organisations, how many students are out there running so-called revolutionary organisations out there in the city centre, away from the masses in, in the council estates where they should be if they were so humble and they were so fucking Marxist and so educated. But these students, these are... These students are educated, so they've got the student loans, so they haven't got to sweat about money, they haven't got to fucking go out and hustle or fucking sell the pussies or the fucking buttholes or fucking sell weed and then risk imprisonment, they haven't got to do nothing. I mean, they haven't got to do nothing, they haven't, they don't know struggle. I swear to God. And and what's more is I believe that these students who get the student loans and then run revolutionary organisations out in the city centre away from the actual masses who are fucking struggling in the council estates or, you know, whatever you call them in the fucking hood or whatever. Like, these students are the same people who were bullied in school by the lumpen, no doubt. And they were also probably dead unpopular in school and they just, like, again, I've said on previous episodes, they probably grew up in the city and they haven't even got the same city's accent as the people who actually grew up in the city because they're not actually part of the masses, they're part of a fucking academic route. Furthermore I believe that both fashion and music culture separates the lumpen from say the student class or working class because like I think a lot of students or like you know people in revolutionary organisations are like kind of like goths or like emos or like just you know the people again who just weren't that popular and don't know everybody uh, <laughs> or like uh, you know what I'm saying so you know not to insult anybody but that's definitely a factor I mean students got me gripes with them obviously I know fucking good revolutionary fucking students don't get me wrong but these are the students who again do know the revolutionary potential of the lumpen and the good people you know what I'm saying but it, it's so rare it's dead rare to have that and I'm speaking from what I've learned you know from people all around the world here not just my experience uh, well I told you not to get me started on that but yeah if anybody else has got more thoughts on that reach out let us know at lumpen underscore radio on twitter so Miranda there are critics out there of sex work who say that sex work is disempowering it's not actually liberating and it's exploitative for that reason and there are also people out there who say that sex work is liberatory it is empowering you know what's your opinion on that 
Um, my experience of sex work isn't what I would label empowering or liberating, but like I said earlier, full service sex work has been much less exploitative than any other job I've had. Um, and it has definitely better ensured my survival while getting by on a lower than low income provided by a government that literally wants disabled people and sex workers to be isolated and fearful at best and locked up or dead otherwise. And aside from my brief time working at the local sex club, I don't earn a profit for a boss or a manager or a property owner. I think that I, I think there's a simplistic discourse that wants to view sex work as either empowering or exploitative, one or the other, and doesn't make space for nuance for both and or for other. Essentially, it is a lack of dialectical materialism, right? Yeah, that's right. As long as my existence is criminalized, I wouldn't call myself empowered but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm disempowered either. There are other options and other ways of understanding and of being. Thank you for that. And yeah, people should think about that when they hear this reiterated that sex work is either exploitive or it's liberatory when, you know, just as being a wage slave, I mean, it's liberatory because you can choose who to be a slave for, but it's still exploitive. There is nuance there and there isn't actually an ultimate answer for that. So thanks. Many of those considered lumpen have lives and bodies that are surveilled and criminalized. Poor people, disabled people, whores, social assistance recipients, whether that be welfare or disability, or currently those who are either relying on unemployment checks during the pandemic or struggling to access that kind of support at all. Disabled and or mad people, black and indigenous people, trans and queer people, homeless people, and everyone for whom a multitude of these identities inevitably intersect the multiply marginalized. Until there are no cops, no landlords, no prisons, no banks, no surveillance, no real estate agents, and no private property, none of us are free. None of us are empowered or liberated until we all are. Well said. You maybe know the slogan, kill the cop inside your head. <laughs> I think about that a lot, and I think all leftists, feminists, and revolutionaries would do well to contemplate the same. Lately, I've been thinking about how both prostitution and disability and chronic illness are viewed by society. When I say society, I mean white supremacist, ableist, capitalist patriarchy as quote-unquote undesirable. There's this idea that nobody wants to be sick, Nobody wants to be disabled and nobody wants to be a whore. That none of these categories are what we grow up dreaming of becoming are not what we imagine we want to do with our bodies. And that if that's a place we end up, we'll want to be rescued and saved, healed and cured. Yet I haven't known a life outside of madness and I'm unlikely to know a life outside of disability. And as mentioned previously, I knew from a young age that I was likely to become a sex worker. So much of the reading I was doing as I grew up was almost a kind of research or preparation. I was actually envious of the guts it took to fuck men for money because it was something I desired, but something I was afraid of too. 
I'd have opportunities and back out, or I'd even create opportunities and then back out. And I remember subscribing to Spread Magazine, for example. Spread, spelled with a dollar sign, of course, uh, when I was in my late teens or early 20s. Um, and back then, I had a boyfriend who, like, really tried to shame me for doing that, for reading something written by and for sex workers, as if I might become one of them, <laughs> even though he also went to strip clubs and watched a lot of porn and had a very large porn collection. Um, and I mean boxfuls and boxfuls. Wow, that's an interesting backstory there. I think it's going to blow a lot of minds, but I also think that there's a lot of people out there who would probably remember what those feelings and thoughts were like as they similarly went through them themselves, because everybody's journey onto sex work had to start somewhere, I guess. Also, interestingly, was that instance with your boyfriend who was a pornaholic, but wouldn't allow you to get involved in that. So what's that like when you're trying to be involved in that kind of industry? For me to participate in the economy and labor of sex work would be seen as not respectable, as foolish, dangerous, shameful, and as something that would jeopardize our relationship. And I think that too relates to something um, Juniper Fitzgerald was saying during her interview with you about how sex work is often misconstrued as a kind of sexuality rather than as a kind of labor. Anyway, that was like over a decade ago, and there is a lot to be said on romantic relationships and supportive friendships with sex workers, but I will leave that for another time and space, I think. <laughs> Also back then, I was like fantasizing about dancing and stripping and like being a go-go dancer and performing in peep shows or these dancers we had in the windows of like sex shops and lingerie shops at the time. I was reading about the lusty lady in San Francisco a lot back then and wishing that I could be there too. <laughs> Great points, Miranda, that don't need much reiteration from me. We are moving on, just got one or two final questions here. But Ryan, is there anything that you want to say to Miranda first? Everything you say makes perfect sense, especially about you talking about people misconstruing um, sex work as a sexuality instead of labour. And I can't help but seeing the crossover of sort of patriarchal capitalism and religion. I think a lot of these anti-trans and sort of anti-general anti-sexuality opinions come out of religions or from religious thinking at least you know the same ideas of the nuclear family etc this is why there's such a tight knitted bond between um christianity in the united states and the right wing but yes things like liberation theology definitely exist mm, that makes sense well, listen, Miranda, there's a lot of people out there who aren't willing to believe that you actually want to be a sex worker. So I'll just ask you bluntly, do you want to be a sex worker? Isn't it true that under communism, you're not actually going to be a sex worker because you've got your material needs met? Acknowledging material conditions is so important. And before addressing whether or not I want to be a sex worker, I would first ask how many people in Western society 
and under global capitalism and imperialism as a whole are doing work that they truly love and truly want to do and grew up dreaming of doing and feel totally excited about and supported with and fulfilled by. How many people are currently working jobs that they'd still want to do in a communist society? Mm. And if their current jobs don't meet the requirements of their ideal, why would communists, leftists, feminists, and revolutionaries refuse to support them and fight for better labor conditions in the here and now, nonetheless? Most of us, in some way, make compromises for our own survival. Often, that means doing work we'd rather not do, doing work that alienates us from our own bodies and psyches, alienates us from the earth and the land and the universe, alienates us from each other, and robs us of time, pleasure, and a sense of purpose. Yeah, that alienation is real, whether you're working class, lumpman class, anything under capitalism. In my early teens, one of the reasons I left school was that I knew I couldn't continue attending without killing myself. There were no other options under which I could stay alive than to leave that building and to leave that world. I knew that I wanted to write, but I also knew that I never wanted to A, be forced to earn a certain amount of money, nor B, be forced to forfeit that money to a landlord. However, now that my twin and I were no longer in school, our mom, who'd been raising us alone since we were three or four, and arguably since birth, <laughs> uh, insisted we get jobs and pay rent. Uh, when I look back, I still have this absolutely visceral feeling of disgust and self-loathing and anger as I recall walking up and down Main Street with my short resume the suffocating feeling of checking in at the employment center, checking in with a probation officer, feeling alienated from my body as I attempted to dress nice on a budget of zero dollars for job interviews. I've never held a job during which I haven't cried in front of the customers or stormed out in a rage and quit or stopped showing up without giving notice or been fired from for some arbitrary reason because it was clear that I was feeling stifled and upset and didn't want to be there. So many people today are definitely not doing what they want to be doing for all sorts of reasons. Um, geographic, which comes down to money, or training, which comes down to money, or college, which comes down to money. Yeah, so it's it's definitely true that many people are not doing the jobs that they, they wish they were doing or want to be doing. And again, this idea ties into the gig economy and what we were talking about earlier, definitely. Barring my time at the sex club, when the emotional labor of acting cheerful in a dark, noisy space, acting cheerful and flirtatious, I would say, one of my roles was to flirt, filled with entitled straight men and feeling excruciating physical pain and headaches and nausea while frolicking about in my underwear without rest, sex work is the only work that hasn't made me cry. Wow. From the ground up, the literal ground up, this is how I see the material conditions. We are human bodies and psyches that contain vast and infinite galaxies of knowledge and feeling and possibility. But right now, especially in so-called Canada and the United States, 
we are forced to rent our bodies as labor in exchange for money for somebody else's profit, and then to forfeit most of the money we've earned to landlords, banks, and basic needs. There is often no end or escape within the foreseeable future. The money we pay to landlords affords us a small corner of our own, maybe, but we can't escape the fact that we're on stolen land and that the labor, agricultural labor, for example, that provides us with food and other basic needs that sustains us is often the forced and underpaid labor of prisoners and migrant workers who are also the undermined and subjugated lumpen and colonized and it's property owners and corporations who benefit from that labor, who profit from our labor, and who disproportionately contribute to climate catastrophe, subsequently killing the planet and harming and disabling our bodies at the same time. We are living under such severe limitations and restrictions, and there's very little wiggle room to get by in a way that doesn't cause somebody somewhere some kind of suffering, and that doesn't bring up some kind of inherent moral or ethical dilemma in our personal and political lives. Our material conditions are currently dictated by the fact that we are on stolen land and by the fact that much of the work that's brought the land to its current state of being was begun through slavery and through genocide. We can't escape the history of kidnapping black people and enslaving them, nor can we escape the history of the attempted genocide of indigenous people. In fact, both of these systems are ongoing, enacted by police and prisons, among others, and as such aren't only history, but are happening in the present too. Mm. The scope of this is impossible for me to dig into right now, but sex work is inevitable under capitalism, and sex work will not cease to occur after the revolution. There are many, many sex workers who love their work and who do find the aforementioned fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in what they do. Clients spend time with us and viewers watch our porn for a multitude of reasons, and their needs and wants and desires are not going to magically be met when we end capitalism. If one basic goal to strive toward is from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, that doesn't undo the need for sexual and emotional gratification for all genders, <laughs> nor the pleasure and meaning found in being able to provide those things in a fair, respectful, and worthwhile exchange. I'm also kind of going to interrupt myself here to provide an example of like, I really like making porn, but I do not like trying to sell it. That is not the fun part of it for me. <laughs> And so when I imagine a communist utopia, I do have to ask myself, why would I stop making porn if I, if that is what is fun and whatever, I like doing it. <laughs> and why would people, again, of all genders, stop watching porn? I'm emphasizing all genders for multiple reasons, but one is that I want to say that often in a conversation of whether or not sex work will continue to exist, men, male clients are often still kind of centered in that conversation, which I understand why it happens and I don't think it's necessary. I think that sex work would look very different under communism and that it would continue. 
And I think that is especially true of kink and BDSM practices, for example. Anyway, after capitalism, we will have a society in which nobody will be forced to engage in sex work if they don't want to, but people who do want to do sex work will be able to do so in equitable and comfortable material conditions and will no longer be subject to surveillance, censorship, or criminalization to the scrutiny and judgment of those who consider themselves superior nor suffer any other form of abuse or misuse of power. With the banishment of capitalism, sex workers will no longer be isolated and no longer have the same kinds of risks that we face today, which include stalking, rape, prison, and murder, to name only a few. Yeah, dead interesting. So you've also just debunked this myth that sex workers don't have their own autonomy when you enjoy it. You mentioned sex work being inevitable under capitalism. I mean, yeah, we just look at obviously how isolated everybody is and, you know, from, from Tinder to all the dating profiles. I mean, it's, it's standard nowadays that people just hook up online. How the fuck else are you meant to fucking meet anybody? Each according to their own needs. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you do have needs such as, you know, a desire for sexual gratification to make love to somebody, whatever it is. Yeah. Of course, it's still going to be there under communism. What do you make of that, Ryan? As to what sex work would look like under communism or if it even would exist at all is something that I actually just don't know the answer to. I would hope the quote-unquote work aspect would have been removed and that no one is essentially enslaved to that job in order to survive. But beyond that, I'm not totally sure what sex work would look under communism. I can't um, assume to have a a crystal ball here. Uh, All I could say is that it would have to come out of the, you know, the material conditions of that nation. And um, I wish I could see into the future. That would be a a much-needed tool to have, honestly. Yeah, spot on, mate. So, Miranda, I'm always going on saying the lump on the being our society from revolutionary organisations and that, but have you ever personally experienced this? What can you say about it? And also, to be productive, do you think that there's any chance you could give us an idea of what you'd like to see from the left? What do we need from the left in order to have progress? A willingness to listen to us is the very first step. Sex workers understand our own conditions better than anyone else. Yeah. And we know what we need better than anyone else. To support sex workers, you need to be willing to have your own views and assumptions challenged, to feel uncomfortable, and to change your mind when given information and analyses that were previously unknown to you. This is similar to becoming an ally with any oppressed group, to working in solidarity with those who live with forms of oppression that you don't personally face. Doing the listening, the reading, doing the research. Sex work activism has been happening for generations, and it has been happening on every continent. As long as sex work has existed, and that is a long fucking time, we have been here, we've been agitating for better working conditions, and we've been accomplices in the revolution. We've always been here, and we've always had the support and solidarity of other oppressed groups. Lesbians and sex workers have a long, rich, intertwined history, for example. Black women and queers and trans folks and sex workers have long, rich, complex, and ongoing histories together, too. And for many of us, disability and sex work are inevitably intertwined, and we, too, have our affinities. All of these identities and social constructions 
disability, blackness, queerness, indigeneity, and so on, each overlap and each inevitably intersect with sex work, with the lumpen, and with the working class. Like I've said before, revolution is impossible without disabled, mad, and chronically ill people, and it is impossible without sex workers. I would also encourage listeners to look up the history and legacy of people like Marsha P. Johnson and STAR, which is an acronym for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and to read up on groups like Wages for Housework, Wages Do Lesbians, and Black Women for Wages for Housework. As well, most major cities uh, and many smaller cities have organized groups where sex workers support one another, provide access to safer sex supplies, offer counseling services, organize events by and for sex workers, do outreach on the street, publish literature, provide political education and workshops, fundraise and agitate. There are also all kinds of podcasts to listen to and books to read. I'll note that. Is there any organizations? Um, in Toronto and Canada, we have Maggie's Sex Worker Action Project. There is the Butterfly Project. We have Stella in Montreal, Pace Society in Vancouver. There's Red Light Legal, and there's First Decriminalized Sex Work. And I am sending you all these links as well, of course. Um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, there is the Black Sex Workers Collective, there's the Hacking Hustling Collective, there's Desiree Alliance, there's the SWAT Sex Workers Outreach Project Behind Bars, which gives books to prisoners, Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement, i.e. SWARM, there is the English Collective of Prostitutes, who have been around for a very long time. And there is a global network of sex work projects. There is also Red Canary Song. And lately I have been listening a lot to the Peep Show podcast hosted by Jesse and PJ Sage, which is a podcast by sex workers about the sex work industry. And it is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, one of the reasons I joined our whole revolution, whole revolution, Shout out. <laughs> reading group, my because I knew I couldn't study Marxism with anybody else. Even just microaggressions and insensitive or uninformed or misinformed comments made in ordinary conversations with Marxists was more than I was willing to put up with. I refuse to expend energy in a conversation where my humanity is up for debate. Wow, yeah. Also, due to inaccessibility, illness, and disability, I was and am frequently unable to participate in reading groups and other political groups. So a few sex workers meeting up online to read together and to have these necessary and fruitful discussions, especially sex workers whose lives also intersect with madness, illness, and disability, is significantly more accessible to me and frankly, much more interesting. Without being able to analyze race, white supremacy, disability, and ableism, horophobia, etc., the texts are just not alive and not relevant. I also think that everybody should be reading up on the harmful and deadly consequences of SESTA-FOSTA and similar laws, 
harmful and deadly for sex workers and harmful and unjust to almost everyone who uses the internet. And then read up on a similar but even more severe law being voted on called the Earn It Act. These laws are US-based, but they affect everybody online. SurviveEarnIt.com is a valuable and crucial site to check out, as well as HackingHustling.com. On disability, illness, resistance, and other topics I have touched on in this interview, some necessary readings on disability, illness, resistance, and other topics I've touched on are Sick Woman Theory, which is a long-form essay by Joanna Hedva, published on Mask Magazine about five years ago. Their work is fucking stunning. <laughs> And sick woman theory is only one piece of many, many, many works. Sins Invalid or Sins Invalid and their artwork on art and work, I mean, on disability justice, which is at sinsinvalid.org. And the poet and writer Leah Lakshmi Vyapsna Smarasina is especially one of her more recent books called Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice which is at brownstargirl.org. Some great resources there. Thank you for that. Our next question is like a pop culture one. What do you think of OnlyFans? Is that another subscription services positive for sex workers? Something liberatory, do you think? So I haven't used OnlyFans or similar subscription sites yet, but I have been strongly considering it and like dreaming and scheming and all kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, again, I wouldn't label subscription sites as either liberatory or exploitative, positive or negative. Why? I think that, again, they are both and, and I think that any way a sex worker can get their hands on cash and get their needs met is something I support, even though I am resentful of relying on platforms that either take a percentage like porn sites or that otherwise hate sex workers and shadow ban and disappear us while earning income from our so-called content like Twitter. Ideally, I would like to use a subscription service so that I'm earning something like a regular or semi more predictable income for the porn I make and don't need to worry about like lurkers and freeloaders the way I do with social media. And I'd love it if that service were created and led by sex workers. Also, ideally, we'd have online subscription services that get us paid, but that don't have the threat of theft and disappearance currently happening with banks and payment processors that is happening today. They are known, among other things, to close our accounts while confiscating the funds that are in them, for example. And I don't know what that looks like yet, but I do know that there are sex workers figuring it out. <laughs> So I don't follow like pop culture or celebrity media and controversy too often, but I do see the headlines and responses and analyses that happen in my Twitter feeds. As Juniper Fitzgerald noted in her interview with you, OnlyFans is essentially a tool for the working class, a way to make ends meet, but it has also been appropriated and misused by celebrities 
to increase their own personal fame and wealth while disregarding the labor conditions of actual sex workers. It also increases profits for the platform itself. I don't have much more to offer on this question, I guess, and I am sure that the next controversy will happen before this episode airs, but there are a lot of other sex workers who use OnlyFans and other subscription sites who have much more to say. Yeah, I just have no idea what to think about OnlyFans at this point because clearly it's a way for many people to make money and they need to be able to do that. And that's why I actually just don't blame people as individuals for what they have to do to make money to get by, honestly. Um, that's why I don't think, you know, shaming people of a different class for selling drugs or anything just doesn't even make sense. Like beyond good, bad, right, wrong, whatever you think about it, just from a practical standpoint, it doesn't make sense to, you know, attempting to shame these people when they the choice in a lot of situations was like that or the doll that or death you know what i mean so nah i never shame people for for what they're doing but i'm sure there is a limit somewhere but these sites are like only fans are just another place where people can you know sign up essentially to have their labor exploited by a company um a lot of this stuff gets into the territory of hyper-reality and, you know, Guy Debord, society of the spectacle, where having something replaces being something as a positive, right? This is why all of social media is about looking happy and putting your best life forward, even if, and most likely when, you aren't feeling that way. And it's no accident. Social media was, of course, designed that way to release dopamine when you get the likes or whatever, the retweets. And that mechanism there is the same as the one-armed bandits, which is how people get addicted to gambling, right? It's the same mechanism, the dopamine hit in the brain when you pull the thing or the same thing as when you get the likes. <laughs> but yes, there was that Bella Thorne incident on OnlyFans who was... I think the story there was that she was charging falsely for her pictures, um, or at least false advertising. She said that they would be nude pictures, but they weren't, and she was charging uh, an incredibly large sum of money for them. Yeah, well said there, Ryan. And with that, we have only one final question. Miranda, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where they can where can they support you? Where can they find everything to do with you? Because people should one million percent go and check you out, go and follow you, support you any way they can. Uh, you're, you're amazing, Miranda. I just love you so much. Yeah. So as I mentioned in my introduction, I keep a blog. Um, I have written more than fifty zines over the last fifteen years, and I self-publish novels. You can read more of my work on MirandaElizabeth.com, which is Miranda with an A. <laughs> and you can buy my work from my Etsy shop at schoolformaps.etsy.com. I also launched a Patreon back in winter, shortly before the COVID-19 crisis. And I'm grateful for the support that I receive there. And I am on Twitter. My handle is at MirandaDearest. I have written online and in print about recovery with borderline personality disorder, complex trauma, fibromyalgia, multiple chemical sensitivities and environmental illness, and chronic fatigue, with an emphasis on politicizing illness and recovery, and understanding illness, mental, physical, and spiritual, as a debilitating and deadly consequence of capitalism, as well as a form of resistance and protest. 
I've spent my entire adulthood writing about writing, creativity and friendship, disability and accessibility, witchcraft and tarot, self-care, support and support, spelled with a dollar sign, queer, mad, poor, crip lineages, and surviving social assistance and poverty. In autumn 2018, my essay, Trash Magic, Signs and Rituals for the Unwanted, appeared in the anthology Becoming Dangerous, Witchy Femmes, Queer Conjurers and Magical Rebels on Summoning the Power to Resist. My work explores themes of loneliness, abandonment and disposability, synchronicity, joy, meaning making and memory, and the process of making a home of place and body. Thank you so much for having me on Revolutionary Lumpen. This has been something that I've really been looking forward to, that I'm really excited to share. And these are conversations that I, I'm deeply invested uh, in continuing. Thank you. It's so great to hear from you and I'm so glad you could join us and that we get to listen to you and your story and that you could join us for this. It's been a great time. It's been the best time. Honestly, I'm so blown away by this, Miranda. This is one of the deepest projects I've ever worked on. Everything you've contributed was so valuable and so important and I really think that people should definitely, if there's any episode to listen to twice, three times, four times, it's this episode. You've made a compelling case for the organisation of the workers and the lumping together, as well as sex work being work, as well as sex workers being autonomous, not mindless drones to capitalism, whoring themselves out like fucking idiots, like the fucking workers who are actually whoring themselves out to fucking the capitalist master who they go to work to fucking five days a week. So we really hope that this has been valuable. It's been a contribution. It's the second out of four episodes on sex work and Marxism. Please follow us on Twitter at lumpen underscore radio, but most definitely check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash lumpen podcast. Subscribe, you get all kinds of bonus content, you know, secret behind the scenes, you know, everything like that all goes up on our Patreon. You get regular episodes and you get all our episodes early and you'll also be notified. Subscribe on your, on your favourite podcast player and then you're always notified when a new episodes come out so you don't miss nothing so with that said we really hope you've all found this valuable and stopped hating each other at least for a little bit workers in lumpen love you all unite peace
Jackie, funny, funny, jerk Jackie.